Hey everyone, I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Today's episode is about something that way too often goes unspoken, infertility and miscarriage. According to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, infertility in the United States alone impacts 6.7 million women. That's about 11% of the reproductive age population. But much like with ALS, numbers can feel abstract. We can't really find compassion for something that's causing so many people pain unless it happens to us, or we can connect with the story of someone else who is going through it. And if we aren't talking about it, we won't hear those stories. And so with that in mind, today I talk with Nicole Briscoe. Nicole is an anchor on ESPN Sports Center. I first met her when she did a short segment with Chris and me on New Year's Day in 2021. I felt right away like she got it in a way that many people don't. When she sent me a message a couple of months later telling me what she'd been going through, I understood why that was. Nicole and her husband, Ryan, who is a professional race car driver, tried for 10 years to make their family. The end result was two beautiful girls, Finley and Blake. The path to those beautiful girls involved seemingly endless cycles of hormones and IVF treatments, needles, never being diagnosed with a disease that can directly impact fertility despite being seen by countless fertility doctors, and miscarriages so numerous you lose track of exactly how many there were. In this conversation, you'll hear Nicole talk about a disease called endometriosis, and I wanted to give a quick explainer of that disease for those unfamiliar. And by the way, if you are a man listening to this and you think, oh, this show, this episode is about women things and I'm not going to be interested, that is exactly why you need to keep listening. Everybody, men and women alike, need to understand these issues so that they can be talked about so that women don't feel alone when they're going through them. And because Ryan went through these things too, everybody needs to talk about these things as they go through them together. So, according to the Mayo Clinic's website, endometriosis is an often painful disorder in which tissue similar to the tissue that normally lines the inside of the uterus grows outside your uterus. With endometriosis, this tissue acts as regular endometrial tissue would by thickening, breaking down, and bleeding with each menstrual cycle, but because this tissue has no way to exit the body, it becomes trapped. The result is cysts, scar tissue, and bands of fibrous tissue that can cause pelvic tissues and organs to stick together. Endometriosis can also cause severely painful periods and may impact fertility. A photo of the Briscoe family looks like they have a dream life, but infertility and the isolation and shame it causes are an all-too-common nightmare. Now, only two months removed from a hysterectomy, Nicole talks about it all. The complicated and conflicting emotions, the guilt, the anger, the shame, the isolation, the resulting grief from 10 years of thinking constantly about getting pregnant and staying pregnant and losing pregnancies in an effort to help other women going through the same thing know that they are not alone. This is Nicole's story. A quick reminder that Sorry I'm Sad is truly a labor of love for me, from finding guests and researching topics to preparing for interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of time, energy, and thought go into each ad-free episode. If you value this podcast and want to show your support, please go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, to become a member. For as little as $5 a month, your contribution will help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and give you access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Thank you for putting on makeup for me today. You look beautiful. Thank you. I was playing in my garden, so. Oh, nice. We aren't there yet here in Canada. 
<laughs> I, I honestly, we're just barely here. In fact, I was in what Miami last week for like six days and I got home. And I'm like, where am I? Like, what is all this green? Where did this come from? Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, we, by the way, I'm surprised that you have a voice. Oh, well, I had to sort of go. <laughs> so we're, we're recording this today, the morning after the flames won in game seven overtime. And yes. I had to go a bit internal because <laughs> I, I text Chris and I was like, I'm going to cry or puke or both. <laughs> This is very, very hard. I've never been to a game seven after like all my sports things. I've never even been to one, let alone have be so invested in one. That's the thing. Cause everyone always says that something to me about like motorsports. Oh, you must be like a huge motorsports fan. But like when you are connected to it personally, when it's so much a part of your life, one, you can get sort of cynical about it sometimes, but two, it takes on a different meaning and like it hurts at like, mm-hmm. you just feel it differently. Yeah. Totally. I was like, I, I full disclosure. I'm old and I fell asleep last night <laughs> while watching. And the first thing I did this morning when I woke up and I was like, did they win? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, my sister-in-law lives in New Hampshire and she managed to stay up for the entire game, which is amazing because it started at seven forty-five mountain time. Yeah. I was like, it was nine 30 my time when it started. Yeah. So my kids went to bed at Midnight. And the other reason why, or a little bit after midnight, the other reason why I had to go internal was because my seven-year-old fell asleep on my lap in like in the, I think right before overtime started. Okay. So she was asleep on my lap. She had headphones on. It's so loud. She normally doesn't wear headphones with the playoffs. The game, one of the playoffs, she was, she, the first thing she said was it's too loud. (laughs) So I bought her the headphones and then, um, yeah, she fell asleep on my lap and then we got, uh, power play, uh, not right. that long into overtime and everybody stood up from that point on <laughs> and I couldn't see anything. <laughs> so my son, he couldn't see either. Cause everyone standing in front of him was adults. So he went up to the tops of like top step of the concourse, because we've been in our section for so long. Like our usher is just the best guy. And he came and got Cohen and said, come stand by me so you can see. And so he stood up there by Len, Len, our usher friend. And I just sat there with Will in my lap and tried to watch on the scoreboard. So I didn't even see the goal until we made it back to Chris's office. <laughs> what, what did Chris do? Like, what was his reaction? He said that they were, because he sits up in the press box and yeah. he said they were just like hugging and <laughs> jumping around. So just crazy. And then, oh, I missed, I wanted to get on video so bad, but we made it down to Chris's office before he did. And the second Chris walked in the door, Cohen just like ran into his arms. It was so awesome. And yeah, I mean, I posted this on Twitter today. Like, yeah, it's a, it's, you know, quote unquote, just a game, but obviously it's so much more for our family at this point. And um, yeah, it was, it was incredible. God, it was stressful. So terrible. Like I had like, I'm a Cubs fan. So I grew up a Cubs fan. So 2016, you know, they're, they're playing game seven of the world series. And my little one at the time was only three months old. And, um, I swear to you, I ruined her for at least a couple of years because she was laying on the floor in one of those like kicky things. Yeah. Um, and there was a home run very early in the game and I jumped up and screamed and terrified her terrified. So for the next two years, whenever she heard loud noises, she was like, startle whatever. But that game, I was like rocking back and forth. Oh, man. And all it is is like, I'm a fan of the team. I had no personal connection. Oh, yeah. It's like pacing. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. totally different. And I covered 
when I was covering the twins, they made it to, they had to play game 163 in back-to-back years. And so I covered two game 163s, which is the closest thing I have for reference, right. right. To game seven. And they were both like the one they played in the Metrodome. It went extra. Like, I don't even know how many innings it went. I think the Joe Nathan was the closer then. And he got out of a bases loaded, no outs jam. <laughs> and it was, it was insane. But the only thing I felt at that point was like, oh my God, I have to write the story. How am I going to write the story? (laughs) It's different, but it's like, how do I put all of that into words? Yeah, exactly. And how do I do it on deadline? Um, But yeah, it's a different thing when you're like, and I know that fans get so emotionally invested, which is is amazing. And then like add the layer of that, like, this is your actual livelihood. (laughs) You know, everybody jokes in sports. Oh, you get hired to get fired. And when you don't win, people get fired. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, it is highly stressful, but we're here today. <laughs> so glad. Yeah. Yes. So obviously you are an ESPN sports sports center anchor. How long have you been at ESPN now? Since January, 2008. Okay. But I did, I did seven years of NASCAR yeah. um, and, and sort of a couple of roles, but I did seven years of NASCAR. And then when ESPN sort of let the contract go, they were like, how do you feel about doing sports center? So I've been on sports center since, um, early 2015. Okay. Great. However many years that is, what year is it? It's 2022. <laughs> there you go. It's yeah. been since then. Yes. I know. Yeah. It's a different, it's hard to remember time and time is in this weird warp still from COVID, right? Like I saw a friend, a daughter of one of our friends. And I asked her how her like exams were going last year at the end of the school year. Cause I was thinking she was still in uni- university and she was like, I, I haven't done with school for two years. <laughs> oh. Yes. I'm like, time is a flat circle. It may have happened last week. It may have happened two years ago. I couldn't no, tell you, when. especially yeah. now, especially yeah. now, yeah, but on, so we first met on new year's day, 2021. It was very early in the morning for us. I think I got up at, I don't know how early was it? Cause it was morning early. It was morning sports center. We had done the show live from seven until 10 AM Eastern. Mm -hmm. And then we taped the segment with you right after. So it would have probably been what 10 Oh five Eastern. So yeah. Eight Oh five. Eight. Yeah. So we had to get up, had to put on makeup as we talked about. Yes. You only yeah. put on makeup for a certain amount of things, and like you have to qualify for that. Yes. I know TV that was one of those moments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. So you guys had us on for you guys have this segment called, and you're not doing morning anymore. You're I'm doing not. Yeah, yeah. It was Feel Good Friday. Yeah, Feel um, Good Friday. It about it was about Chris. Yeah, it was about Chris, and it wasn't very long, and we didn't really have any. Um, it's not like we knew you beforehand, but it was this moment, and I know I messaged you after because. I said, like, I know it was really short, but you seemed to get it in a way that not a lot of people do. And I just really appreciated your approach to it. And it was, it was more emotional than I thought it would be. I think I ended up crying. You ended up crying a little bit. Um, Remember, this is what I remember in the moment. Um, I mean, I remember watching you look at him. You're gonna make me feel emotional just thinking about it. I just remember (laughs) you looking at him and there was almost like a, um, there was so much love obviously, but almost awe, Hmm. like he's still here and he's still doing the things that he's doing. And I just remember looking at you, looking at him and feeling this like connection to both of you. And then we wrapped up the interview and I think I'd asked, we, we were talking about, um, like how many hugs and kisses and things like that. Oh yeah. 
And then it brought it like, you know, my kids are, they're now eight and, and five. And it, it just became like, you, you put yourself in your shoes and you think about how it would affect your life. And yeah. I felt an instant connection yeah. to both both of you guys. Yeah. I think that Chris mentioned that Cohen has always said something about like, we got to get to a million hugs or something yes. like that. So we talked about how many hugs per day that is <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. To get to that point. Yeah. It was, it was a really great um, little segment and I still watch it sometimes because it, those things actually bring me back to a place of like remembering what I have in the moments when all I can kind of see are the things I've lost or the things that I might have to lose. <clears throat> So a couple of months after we had that, um, did that interview, you messaged me and I wonder if it's okay with you if I share the message that you sent me, you probably don't even remember it. Remember part of it, but go ahead. And okay. Yeah. So you wrote in August, I found out I was pregnant. Wasn't exactly unexpected as we had gone in for an IVF transfer, our final little egg building. Our family has been a journey. By October, I was no longer pregnant, but I still was because I'd lost only baby A. Baby B was discovered outside my uterus as an abdominal ectopic pregnancy, not viable. I went through two rounds of chemo to stop cellular growth. I then scheduled surgery, one of two, for January 28th to fix some of the damage done. Then, because sometimes life thinks it's hilarious, I blew out my knee on my first real outing. Awesome. Surgery, pain, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> It's quote unquote been fun. It's a long story, but I think of you every single time. I think this, I'm not okay. And that's okay. It's okay to not be okay. What you're enduring is so much more complicated and painful, but some of what I have heard you talk or write about has helped me particularly since the first of the year when we first met. And I just really appreciated your message for so many reasons, because sometimes like what I'm doing is, is for myself, but it also feels like, is it worth it to put all this out there. And so I appreciated that you were telling me it was, but I really appreciated that you felt like you could tell me your hard thing. Uh Um, that meant a lot to me. Um, so my hard thing is obviously Chris is ALS and your hard thing, or at least one of your hard things in life has been, um, infertility. Mm -hmm. And this is not something that I have talked about at all on the podcast. And as I was getting ready for this conversation, I realized I have also not talked about this with any of my friends. I have no idea how many of my friends have had a miscarriage. It certainly has happened to many of them. I don't know why we don't talk about it. I don't know why. I don't know why we feel like we have to go through all of that, like alone. And I, I, I mean, our infertility struggle, I mean, that was, that was the last chapter. Yeah. Our infertility struggle started. we, We started trying to have our family like six months after we got married and it was four years before we had Finley. Right. Um, and the number of miscarriages in there, the number of miscarriages, like within the first four years, but then just up until that, that last one, like I always sort of say it's too many to count and Mm -hmm. you're just sort of expected to go through your life and not talk about it. Mm -hmm. And, and internalizing all of that also so unhealthy. I can remember so many times feeling like, like, this is the one thing that you're taught, you're just supposed to be able to do. Yes. And then when it doesn't happen or it doesn't happen the way that you think it should happen, or it doesn't happen according to your timeline, you feel like a failure and because you're not talking about it. And because you're not telling anyone about it, you're just holding all of that inside and it just compounds everything. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I think when Chris was diagnosed, one of my biggest fears was feeling alone and Mm -hmm. feeling isolated in in this. And that's probably why I talk about it the way I do is because I don't want to feel alone. I want people to remember, Hey, we're still here. But if you don't have, it's a different thing, right? Because I can point to Chris and say, look, this is my husband and he's sick Mm -hmm. and people who can relate to it in a different way. And I think in general, what I've learned is like, I did a podcast episode with a mom who lost her daughter to cancer. And I did another podcast episode with a mom who had a still, a stillbirth at like 20 something weeks Mm -hmm. and people just can't talk about babies and kids. And they don't, I've had so many people who listen to my podcast say, I couldn't listen to that one. Right. And it's because it's so Hard. hard to think about losing our kids and not being able to have our kids that we just all kind of clam up. Right. I, I, I think about like, and you can relate to this, like you're career driven and there's this whole point in your life where you're like, maybe I'll have kids, maybe I won't, but it's gotta be like on this timeline and I've got to do all these things first. And, um, like I was the kind of person who I, I wasn't necessarily sure. Like I absolutely had to have kids. Right. Um, and then I met my husband and then it was like, well, this makes sense. And I want, I want to now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I I look at them like now the the thought that I questioned having them Mm. and I look at my little like miracles and I watch them. And sometimes I just sit back and I stare at them and I'm like in awe of their existence Mm -hmm. and how they've changed my, my, my whole world and in ways that people are like, Oh, I'm pregnant. What advice do you have for me? I'm like the, the most profound advice I can give you is just like stuff. I can't even put into words. Like, because the way that being a parent changes you the most, you can't describe to somebody else because it's, it's impossible to understand until it actually happens to you until your heart just explodes with that joy and that love and the worry and all of the things. And I just, it's so on mother's day this year, this is so like, it feels so weird, but like, so mother's day, I was in, um, I was in Miami for work Mm -hmm. and I wasn't with my kids. This is so like dramatic. But I kind of felt like I wasn't with my kids, but in some ways it felt like a, a moment to have with all the ones who didn't make it here, Oh yeah, which is ridiculous and dramatic, but there are, but don't do that to yourself. It's hard, but like, it's hard. So it's I like, know it, you it had felt space, like you had moment. space to honor that mm-hmm. because I feel like in so many ways, those moments and those those babies that didn't make it to this side, they're still a part of me and they're still a part of that journey. And they are still very much part of how I parent my girls now and how I look at them and how I am grateful for every single day, even when they're driving me crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I, I think about all those things, but I also think, I think about those, those losses and how I want to raise my girls to 
how I want them to know that it is okay to not be okay. It's okay to feel those things. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay to talk about your body. These are all things that you don't have to be ashamed of and hide. Like let's have the conversations, let's talk. And so anyway, on mother's day, when I wasn't with my kids and I wasn't with my family, it felt like that moment to sit back and reflect on the ones who really weren't here with me either. Mm -hmm. But yet in so many ways they have shaped how I am as a mother. Yeah, of course. I know that you mentioned already that you, you say that you have had so many miscarriages. You couldn't, you can't count them. Do you, do you think you can estimate? I mean, I can think of, I mean, okay. So I, before we had Finley, I can think of four, Mm. um, including one, which there were, there were two in particular that like stand out. One was I was in Darlington, South Carolina, living the dream, doing the NASCAR thing. (laughs) And, um, it was really early, like, you know, within six weeks, but I knew I was pregnant because we were going through all the fertility stuff. And so you're, when you're, when you're not going through fertility, um, that, that part of that journey, sometimes you don't even realize you're pregnant until six weeks, but when you are going through it, like day one, you're like, well, it's in there. And then like Mm -hmm. this, like you just, your your clock is all messed up. So I knew Mm -hmm. I was pregnant and I was probably only five or six weeks along. And, um, I was getting ready to do the show and our only bathrooms are porta potties. Awesome. It's tremendous. Yeah. I was getting ready to do the show and I was like, God, I just, something's not right. So I went to the bathroom and it had started. Um, and within an hour I was on the air for the next three or four, uh, Ryan wasn't with me and, uh, didn't know until those three to four hours later. Um, there was another time when it would have been that same year I was in Texas and I was a little further along, but not out of the first trimester, but I was a little further along and I woke up in the morning and I was late to a meeting and like, no one knew I was pregnant and no one really knew what was, what was going on. Um, and I was going to be late and I was going to miss this important meeting. And I called my boss and my excuse in the moment was, um, my alarm didn't go off because like, what, like, I'm going to make up an excuse. My alarm didn't go off. And, uh, I got myself together called the doctors and everything, got myself together, made it to work. And my boss pulled me aside and he was like, these meetings are mandatory. They're a huge part of our production plan. If you are late again or miss another one of these meetings, there will be disciplinary action. And you still didn't tell him? No, I didn't tell him. I didn't Did you even him. consider telling him. I just wonder like, what was your thought process at that point? Like this, you felt like you I couldn't? Will, I couldn't, I couldn't. I will also tell you that when I finally did get pregnant, um, this, this particular boss told me if you're going to be a mom, maybe the show you're on right now, isn't the place for you. Okay. So that's why you couldn't tell that boss. <laughs> no, that boss, that boss was just, you know, he's, he's no longer with the company and not for those reasons, for other reasons, but like, he was just not someone that I could, someone that I could tell. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, like when I was going through the stuff at the end of 2020, um, I, I didn't tell my bosses then. And it was like, there was a lot that was going on. Yeah, There was only one person that I told. And, um, 
like one day, like the, the drugs that I was on, the way that I was feeling, it was awful. And the director one day was like, Hey, I need you to go stand up across the room and do a stand up to talk to Tim Tebow. And I didn't want to stand because when I stood up, yeah. stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to sit there and feel frumpy and lumpy and just get through the show and just move on with my life and get out of there. Yeah. And he was like, I need you to stand. And I like lost my shit. And I'm like, I was like, no, I'm not standing. And this is like my favorite director. Me snapping at the crew is not really something that I do. Yeah. Like I love our crew. And I went, um, I did the segment. I went to the bathroom. And when I, I, I left the bathroom, one of the coordinating producers who was essentially the boss of the program, he was, he was waiting for me in the hallway. And this is the example of like a good boss, someone who's like in tune with people and is paying attention and is like, that behavior out of her is not normal. Yeah. So I need to pay attention. Right. And I came out of the bathroom and he's like, I don't know what it is. I know that you're not okay. And he goes, screw COVID. I'm giving you a hug. Aww. And like, I, I didn't tell him what was going on. They know now. Um, yeah. But in the moment, I didn't feel like I could talk about it. Yeah. And isn't that part of it? Like we do this thing when we're, and I've never really understood it. The thing where like, when you get pregnant, you're not allowed to tell anybody in case the baby, and I don't like something happens. Yeah. Well, like, don't, isn't that why you need to tell people? Because in right. case something happens, don't you need people to be like, oh no. And, and support you. And yes. hold you up. here's a hug. Like here's also, this is crappy. Like the person. And I, and I don't mean this in any negative way towards, towards my husband, but like, Cause he, he's the most supportive person has like literally picked me up off the ground when I have been just beyond devastated or in pain. And I, he, he, he can't relate. He can yeah. watch, he can watch what I'm going through, mm-hmm. but he doesn't know what it feels like. He doesn't know like the emotional toll that it, it takes because he's never had to go through it in that way. And it's, it's just hard. So my person is my husband, but it would have been hindsight. It would have been so much better for me if I would have been able to, to pick up the phone and talk to somebody else who had been there, who had experienced it, because there's just, there's an understanding that develops there that just doesn't happen when you're talking to your husband about it. And I, and again, I don't mean that in a, in a bad way because he is the most supportive, most understanding, but no matter what he does, there will always be that gap because he, he he didn't have to do it. Right. And I just think always when we're going through something hard, like we're looking for somebody, somebody's experience that we can relate to. You know, I want to talk to as many people who, who have a spouse who has gone through this, who have mm-hmm. a husband who's gone through this. Like when I first watched, and I've said this over and over when I first watched Gleason, which is the documentary about Steve Gleason, I just watched his wife like the whole time. Yeah. You know, there's a scene where they're watching their wedding video and their little, their son, who's now 10 was an infant sitting on her lap and they're filming it them watching it and Steve falls asleep while they're watching it. And she's sitting there alone, holding her baby, watching her wedding video. Her husband can no longer talk, speak. And she's just crying, holding her baby. And I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) But those are the, like, that's the, that's what you want, right? That's what you needed in that moment was you need somebody who can, who, you know, has lived that exact experience. Yes. And found a way to keep going. 
And, and, and somebody who can make you feel like whatever it is that you're feeling is okay. Yes. It is okay to feel angry. It's okay. It's okay to feel guilty. And this kind of goes for, for everything. I'd imagine you feel the, the same way. Like it's, it's okay. Like whatever it is that you're feeling, feel those things. Don't, no. don't diminish those emotions just because you think somebody is like, just because you think, well, that's not how I'm supposed to be acting. Like you and I have had conversations shockingly all over like DM or something (laughs) about the idea of gratitude Mm -hmm. and how I personally have struggled with the concept of, of gratitude. Like I look at my kids and I am, Oh my God, so grateful that they exist. But sometimes being grateful for them diminishes Mm -hmm. that feeling that I was like, what I I did want more. Mm -hmm. And while I am grateful for them, I don't want to ignore, there's like a guilt that comes with the, the, it's okay that I'm, I'm, I I wanted more Mm -hmm. and I don't want to always have to feel thankful. I want to feel mad and sad and upset. And I want to feel that I got robbed because I think that's the thing with any medical issue or, or or anything that's beyond your control. Mm -hmm part of the loss is the loss of control. Mm-hmm. Part of the loss is not having a say in how it is that you're going about your life and how it is that you're going about um, achieving sort of like the idea of your family that you, you thought like when you get married or when you have kids, like you sort of have this idea in your head of what that future is going to look like. Of course. Yeah. And when something happens that is outside of that, it's a loss of control. Oh Yeah. And, and it's like, I, I want to be grateful for all of the things that I do have. And it's so much. And I am, I am aware of that, but I struggle with that need to be like fucking mad, like, and part of it there's, and it's complicated because there's like endometriosis that went undiagnosed yeah. doctors who didn't doctors who didn't listen to me and my symptoms and, and, and all sorts of things. And like, I, I'm mad about some of that yeah. while also still being grateful, yes. but then guilty for the fact that I'm not grateful enough and I still wanted more. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can't, there's the, what I, I've read before, like, don't should on yourself. I should feel this way. I should feel that way. I yes. should feel this way. It's hard to do in the moment. Exactly. It's so much easier to say that to yourself in hindsight yep. than it is to actually f- feel it in the moment. Yeah. And I think that what you're talking about too, is that, um, like being mad, like that loss of control is also like every loss that you had mm-hmm. is you have to grieve that future you thought you'd have with that baby, the yes. future that your family would have had with that child in it. Right. Yes. And when Chris was diagnosed, I had to grieve the future of my family, what I thought my family would look like, even if Chris is here for a many, many more years, what I thought my life with him would look like is not what it looks like you know? Mm-hmm. And so there are all of these, and I, I say this a lot in the podcast, these like, I call them microcosms of grief where you are like, now I have to grieve this little loss and it might not be the big loss. That doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's not hard. No. Yeah. I, I completely get that. Like there, there are a couple of, um, dates in particular, um, for me, the, the two pregnancies that went the, the longest, um, and they both actually they're in May. And so whenever May comes around, which is also Mother's Day, yeah. 
think of those two and how they would have changed our family. But then it's weird too, because I, I think about it and it's like, so we went through IVF and you, you, if any of those miscarriages had taken, then maybe I wouldn't have Finley or Blake. Right. Yeah. It's so complicated. Like, it is. It's so complicated. It's like, okay, well, what if one of the ones before Finley had taken, and then I, I didn't do IVF and then that little egg wouldn't have existed. Or what if Finley was like the second child? Mm-hmm. I, I, you can't it, what if yourself, right? Cause you're crazy. That, I, but I do, this yeah. is what I do to myself. Not only yeah. do I, what if myself and like, you go to bed, someone was like, Oh, you know, um, was about being a mom and, and having like the perfect day. And I was like, if you can like look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and be like, I handled everything like perfectly, um, you are lying through your teeth. Like I'll go to bed at night and think, God, I wonder if I had that conversation with Finley. Did I say all the right things? Did I do all the right things? I what if myself to death about everything. Mom guilt. Well, let me ask you a question. Sure. And it kind of goes back to some of the, the medical things where I said it was complicated for me. Like obviously you've been, you've been like an incredible advocate for Chris and fighting to find all of the resources that you found and access to, to, to all of the things that he's, he's in now. Mm-hmm. Where did you find that voice? Um, well, I think, you know, like as a journalist, like you're a storyteller and you're a truth teller, despite what people think about journalists, <laughs> um, you want to tell the truth. And it didn't really feel like there was another option. It wasn't a conversation we had where it was like, well, should we share things or should we not share things? And we've talked about how when we lost, when Chris lost family members to ALS, we didn't really do anything. And then as far as advocacy goes and fundraising, when Chris was diagnosed, we knew because of his position in hockey mm-hmm. um, and because we know a lot of people in media uh, from when we were both journalists, that we would have a sort of unique platform for getting our story heard. And we knew that, honestly, we knew that we were a compelling story. Like we are a young family Mm -hmm. and there's this notion, you know, a a misconception that ALS is like an old person's disease. Right. And, um, and it's happening to young families every, you know, all, all over. So, you know, I remember when he, we were in Miami, that was where he was, you know, really diagnosed. And, and we just said, we're going to send this, we're going to tell this story. And he said, you're going to tell the story to me and you're going to tell it. I'm so glad you're going to tell the story was kind of how he said it. And, and so I felt a responsibility to, um, to him. Um, and I also feel a good amount of responsibility, not innocence responsibility is, um, I want to leave a story for my kids. Uh, I don't know when, if they look back on this, someday that they'll understand all the choices we made, or if we did all the right things, as we know, we just talked about going to bed and wondering when we're having conversations about death and dying. And, you know, I had a really hard conversation with my seven-year-old not that long ago about tracheostomies and why dad someday, if he can't breathe, will get a tracheostomy like Steve Gleason, but why didn't grandpa Bob do that? Like, these are hard, really hard conversations. And you question yourself and all of that. I just wanted to leave something for them mm-hmm. so that they could understand maybe as they get older, sort of what it was like for us. You know, I don't think we ever really know our parents on no. a personal way. Like we know our parents as our parents and, and they're people. Right. Mm-hmm. And as I've gone through more of life, I just know my parents 
had so many more complexities in their day-to-day existence than I could have understood. Yeah. And so I want them to be able to say, okay, this is what mom and dad were going through and, and they can hopefully understand us on a little bit of a different level. And, and hopefully, you know, I think hopefully they can, they can be proud of what we did in the face of something that was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of probably one of the biggest ones for me is that they could, they could say bad things happen and we can't control that, but we can control how we respond to it. It's an incredibly difficult concept for a 10 and a seven-year-old. I mean, they're 10 and they're seven right now, now. Yes, but someday this is going to be there for them to come back to, right? Exactly. And I think what you're giving them is a glimpse. Like you said, you didn't really know your parents. I think the the glimpse that you're giving them of like what it's really like and who you really are and letting them be a part of it instead of feeling like they're like, you're making the decisions and then telling them afterwards, they're a part of it. Mm -hmm. I think that that helps them in so many ways, understand and, and carry the burden easier. Yeah. And I think that we do our kids a disservice by assuming that they can't understand these hard things and that they aren't already feeling them. Like we can go back to last night and it being just a hockey game, but my 10 year old came down those concourse steps after we scored that goal and he's crying and he's loves hockey. And he's certainly very invested in, in the flames, but he understands, he knows what this means to dad and what this means to our family. And so I just think, you know, let them see what's happening, you know, Mm -hmm. let them, you know, not, 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 not to the point where, you know, my emotions might scare them or, or make them feel worried, but this is our reality. And there's no day that we can get through that doesn't include ALS in it. So why would we not have these conversations, you know, like on mother's day, when I just said, when dad's not here on special days, it makes me feel sad. You know, I'm going to tell you that because I might be grouchy or I might be sad. And why would I sort of just keep that from you? I, I know. And I wonder that for you, because I think that again, like, like for the public face of my, I mean, the obviousness rather of my grief is obvious to the kids too, but the, the, your grief is not obvious to your kids. And I wonder how you, because we should say like, you are really still in the, like you are in the thick of this. You just had a hysterectomy like a month and a half ago. I, I, yeah, it was March 24th. I had a hysterectomy. And then, um, a week later I had some really severe complications, like had an emergency surgery and like, it could have been really bad. Um, I think my kids don't, my, my kids have asked, like, did we consider, would we want to have another baby? And they've, they've sort of asked it in their clunky eight, five-year-old ways, however old they were. Um, and they've been told, yeah, it didn't really work out for us. And I, I, and I just think like, because like their existence is so wrapped up into the, the medical aspect of it. And it's such a complicated concept anyway, like the whole idea of how babies are made, but then like, that's not how they were made. Um, like someday I want them to understand and I want them to understand not only like I wanted you so much that I went through all of this to bring you into this world. And I went through all of the pain and the loss and that's part of it. And my gratitude and my, my looking at you and never taking you for granted and just 
having all of that wrapped up into your existence. Like I want them to understand that someday, but they can't be there now. And we never wanted to, like, I never wanted this. The last time when I was pregnant, I never, I did. There was a, for the briefest of moments, I thought about telling them. Mm. And then like hindsight, I was so glad I didn't. Yeah. Because it would have been such a hard thing for them to understand because like, so with, with the last one, I was pregnant and then suddenly I wasn't. And then, you know, they, they monitor you to make sure that it's, everything is going back to the way it should be. And it wasn't. And we couldn't figure out why, because not only was it an ectopic, and most of the time when you think of an ectopic, it's like it's in your tubes. Yeah. But mine was IVF. So it had it was never like in my tubes. Um, it had somehow escaped my uterus and had gotten stuck in my abdomen in endometriosis scar tissue. Which you didn't know you had. Didn't know I had it. I had gone through 10 years of infertility and the fact that I had never been diagnosed with endometriosis is absurd and it's infuriating and it's so frustrating because it wasn't like I wasn't telling doctors, look, my periods are so bad. If I stand up after 30 minutes, I'm ruining a pair of pants. Like I, like, and I'm down for the count and I'm having, you know, terrible cramps. I'm telling doctors this. And no one is listening to me. They're like, oh, well, well, let's put you on some birth control. Let's do this. And the idea of going on birth control when you cannot yeah. have a baby because you're battling infertility is just like the absurdity of it just feels, it also feels like an extra like wrench in the situation. Yeah. And I, I finally, like I went through the, the, the chemo rounds because I, I, I think of this baby and I'm, it wasn't viable, but in my head, it was a baby because it was supposed to be. And so like, and it kept growing and it, and like, it was, it, it wasn't viable. It was, it was a series of, of cells and I know it wasn't viable and it wasn't like we could take it and transfer it because it just wasn't, wasn't viable anyway, but it kept growing and my kids are stubborn and I'm stubborn and in my head. I'm thinking, of course, this little thing is stubborn. Like I didn't know what to call it because yeah. it, it was complicated in the emotions. And the first round, the doctor goes, you know, we've, we've done all this stuff already. We've got to do an extra step. I've never had to do this before, but this first round is going to work. And I'm like, okay. And I am like, this is the chemo. Yes. I am like bone tired. Like there are a variety of, of chemos that you can do. Um, but like this particular one, it's like a, like when you have cancer, it's like 12 different drugs mixed together. This was like very targeted. I didn't have like the side effects that sure. you would get in other places, but I was like bone tired. And he's like, it's going to work. I'm not going to need to see you again, blah, blah, blah. Can you say what are the first things you went through? Cause this was not the first attempt. At well, I'd already had two doses of methotrexate and that, that didn't work either. Like, which just, is the drug that is supposed to supposed to um, yeah. resolve the ectopic. That's the best way to work. Two yeah. doses that's a shot in the butt. And that didn't, that didn't work. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we have to do the next part. Um, otherwise, it's like they thought it would be fairly invasive surgery and they were trying to avoid that. So they were like, let's go and do it because that was the other thing. We couldn't exactly pinpoint where it was because it was behind and in the scar tissue. Mm-hmm. So long story short, two rounds later. It's 
like the beginning of November and it's finally resolved. Finally, it's been going on for what felt like the longest time. And I've now switched to a doctor who for the first time in my adult life, I feel like is listening to me Mm -hmm. because you have your fertility doctors and then you have like your normal doctor. And I've always sort of wrestled with the fact that like when you get pregnant and then you get released from the infertility doctor, you go to like your normal doctor to be like a normal pregnant person. And in the late rounds of this infertility, I've, I've been with this other doctor, um, Dr. Purcell, and she's amazing. And I feel like she listens to me and she sees me and she hears me. And it is the first time in my like reproductive life that I feel like I've had that in a doctor and it's kind of amazing. And I wish I'd had it 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. but I didn't. And so I'm just grateful that I have it now. Mm -hmm. So she guided me through all of the stuff that I was going through. And she was like, let's go in, let's do the tubal. Um, cause there was some damage done. She's like, let's go in, let's do the tubal. Let's clean you out. So t- um, t- tie your tubes, which is like tubal ligation, remove them and then do an ablation remove them. and mm-hmm. help yep, remove them, do an ablation. And then, um, hopefully it'll, it'll help with some of like the heavy periods that I was getting. And so she goes in and she opens me up and she's like, holy, um, wasn't expecting what I found. And like endometriosis was a, it was a serious problem. Um, my left ovary was a mess, not as bad on my right side. It was like in my bowels. It was my uterus on the backside, like just so there was so much. And she was like, what we were hoping to achieve out of this, this surgery, she's like, I'm not sure you're going to get the results you wanted. So I was like, okay. So what does that mean? She goes, I think you're going to have to consider a hysterectomy. Let's see how it goes. And we'll revisit this like in a couple of months. And then I blew out my knee because of course, um, and what happened was like, I blew out my knee and like, I'd gone through like the physical and emotional stuff with the baby. And then I was going through the physical stuff with my knee and I'd gotten to this point where, and I still sort of feel this way. I, I look in the mirror and I don't necessarily see myself, but I look in the mirror and I see what the last like two years have done to me. I see the scars, I see the extra weight, I see the like the softness, I see <laughs> the extra lines on my face. I I I, fe- I see like the tired and I and I don't necessarily feel myself. So I I blow out my knee and I started seeing this other doctor cuz the hysterectomy was supposed to be a robotic hysterectomy and my doctor doesn't do that. So she was like go to this other doctor, it's either this one or this one. And I went to whoever I could get into first. And this is the one that I struggle with the most because she calls me in and she's like, well, you don't have endometriosis. I was like, what? I was like, no, yeah, I, I do. I do. Like I had the surgery for it. Dr. Purcell. The only thing I can think of is that she wasn't looking at my chart. Like she wasn't looking at the right chart or something. It, It makes no sense. So I go through like an entire summer with this woman who's treating me for period pain and bleeding, but she's giving me estrogen and progesterone. And if you have, if you have, um, endo, like it feeds off of estrogen. So giving somebody estrogen when they have endometriosis is actually making it worse. 
So I'm talking to this woman and she's like, you don't have endo. I'll treat you for it. But you know, she was completely dismissive. She dismissed me and my symptoms and how I was feeling. And I finally got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'll just deal with it. And I stopped seeing her. And I went back in, in December of last year. And I, and I, I, I decided to put off the hysterectomy because again, I was looking in the mirror and I wasn't seeing myself and I wanted to run the New York city marathon as like a reminder that despite what I could see in the mirror, like I know that inside I'm still there Yeah. and I wanted to prove it to myself, even if it wasn't perfect or it wasn't pretty, or if it wasn't for the best time, I wanted to be able to, to line up and finish and, and sort of have it be like a gift to myself. And also like in some weird way, like it was, I have a couple of donor pieces and parts in my knee and it felt like the right way to say thank you to a family who made an impossible decision at an impossible time in their lives. It felt like a thank you that I was like using these pieces, pieces and parts to maintain the life that I want for myself. Yeah. So I go back in after all of this in December to my doctor, my amazing doctor. Mm -hmm. And she goes, why did you put off the hysterectomy? And I proceeded to tell her, And I, and I was like, and Dr. ABC said, I don't have endo. And Dr. Purcell's like, excuse me, what? And she's like, yes, you do. And she grabs my, she grabs the computer and she shows me, she's like, this is your chart right here. Like literally in bold letters, it says endometriosis stage four, but I, I read it and I was like, what is this woman looking at? What is this woman looking at? And so my doctor up to me, she goes, you tell me when you want the hysterectomy. She goes, and I'm calling on your behalf for these other doctors in the practice. And you tell me and you get it. And like literally the next day, the scheduler called. And so I decided that I was going to do it in March because um, then I could have a ski season if I wanted it. You know, after my knee injury, it was going to be nice to go back and attempt to ski and attempt to get back to the life I was having with my kids. Um And I thought, you know, you can't get in a pool for like 12 weeks after. So I was like, I can do it in March. And then by the time summer rolls around, I can be back in the pool with the kids. So Mm -hmm. I thought, perfect. So they go in and they clear out some endometriosis that had formed again, um, just in the year since my first surgery, they took my left ovary, which was just, (laughs) I call it trash. It was trash. (laughs) Um, they took it, they left my right. So I wasn't thrown into menopause um, menopause. and they took my, um, uterus obviously and my cervix. And when they cross-sectioned the uterus, I don't even know how to say it, but it's a a specific kind of endo that is found in the muscle Mm. of the uterus. And it causes it to be bigger than it should be. And it, it like, it bloats out, uh, causes intense pelvic pain on top of the bleeding. And plus it was, you know, outside as well. So yes, I had endometriosis and yes, it was bad. And this doctor just didn't listen to me. And it wasn't just that doctor, it was a lot of doctors. So I just crazy to me that you could go through like so many, so many years of fertility treatments And it's pretty common knowledge that like endometriosis can be a cause of infertility. And so like, how, how does nobody pay attention to that? I feel like, and this is part of why I made the decision to be a little more honest about what I was going through Mm -hmm. 
because I feel like endometriosis and some of the issues that women experience while they're trying to have a family are just some of the issues that they're having, even when they're not like, if you don't want to have kids, that's like your decision. Um, but you, just because you don't want to have kids, doesn't mean that you should have to go through life in pain because you have endometriosis. Like you have the right to be diagnosed. You have the right to have a doctor listen to you and hear you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there was a time I can't even remember. Like when is the first time you heard the, the, the name endometriosis? I don't Probably think it was not that long. I don't know. Exactly. As an adult, as an adult. I don't think it was being talked about when I first went to the fertility clinic in North Carolina, which is where we were when I had Finley. Like, I don't think it was being talked about. I don't remember ever even hearing about it. Um, And it was fairly late. And I think by then, maybe I was just so used to my symptoms Mm -hmm. that maybe I stopped. And and I've done this to myself. Like, maybe I stopped being super honest about it because at some point you get to a a point where you're like, well, this is normal. Mm -hmm. Um, I must just have a high pain tolerance. (laughs) Oh my God. The number of times I have thought that to myself, like, am I just such a wuss, whatever. And it's like, no, I'm not like, this was legit. And so that's why, um, I thought if I can, if I can say this, if I can make myself just the tiniest bit vulnerable and I can say this and I can be honest about what it's like for me, what I have gone through and the complications it has caused and the emotional distress and the tears and the moments of self-doubt and all of the things that I have felt and gone through over the last Mm. decade plus, if I can make one other person feel not alone, Mm -hmm. then it's worth it. Yeah. Um, And then, and then I get out of it too, feeling some sort of like, it's a late, it's a late hug, Mm. but it's still that reminder that while it may have felt alone in the moment, I really wasn't alone. Yeah. And that it's so common and it it's, we need to, I think, what did I, what did I say? I think I said it too. You have to allow yourself the you have to allow yourself the grace that you was, you would encourage others. Oh yeah. To- yeah. You would say, talk to yourself the way you would talk to your friends. Right. Or the stranger. Like yeah. you would allow the stranger on the street so much more grace than you would allow yourself. And I'm the worst at that. Like I had a hysterectomy. It was back to work less than a week later. Yeah. I was, I was, I was like, well, I mean, I follow you on social media and I was like, seems like a really big surgery, (laughs) but she's going to Rome. (laughs) I'm going to go back to work. And it's like, I'm going to, and should I have done it? No. My, My mom is like, why are you back at work? Why aren't you taking yourself the time? And it's like, Oh, I mean, the business that I'm in makes me feel like I have to make myself available. And that part of it is complicated. Yeah. It's, I reached out to a friend of mine. I have, I have a friend who has, has like you has two babies, but two kids, um, but has struggled with um, infertility, secondary infertility. Um, It hasn't done IVF, but just has, you know, done all the things that she could sort of naturally to try to get pregnant. Um, and has had losses and, uh, you know, significant, you know, losses via miscarriage. Not all of them are obviously, but I kind of reached out to her to just say like, what should, 
there's some things that I can really relate to. I don't feel like I need any help. What about like, I don't want to miss something, but because this isn't something I can relate to. I, I wrote to her and I just said like, what do you, what's important to talk about in your mind? And she mentioned to me a few things. And one of them was um, that nobody tells you how much fertility drugs will fuck you up and for how long she mm-hmm. said, like, it's a year's long impact on your body. And I wonder if you can speak to that and explain what that means. Not only are you, yes, yes. And I think it's even hard to, like, I think it's hard to quantify the changes and some of the things that you see, but like, and and the, the drugs are like, I remember with Finley, I was on estrogen patches mm-hmm. and I learned of bra sizes that I didn't even know existed because that was the, in fact, that was one of the effects that it was having on me. I went from having like meh, relatively normal to just like, where did these come from? <laughs> and it hurt and it hurt my back and it yeah. was like so much and it was uncomfortable and it made me self-conscious. I still, to this day, I find myself sitting like this trying to like sink into myself, hide yourself. I have, um, like I did several rounds of IVF. So all of the injections and at some point in IVF, you're giving yourself two to three shots a day, Mm -hmm. depending on what protocols your doctors are following. I have on my abdomen, little red dots. Mm -hmm. Not only do I have like the scars from surgeries and and a couple of C-sections, I have these like little red pinprick dots all over my stomach. And those are some of like the physical things that you can still see to like this day. Um, But I feel like, you know how I said, I, I look in the mirror and I don't necessarily see myself or I don't see the version of myself that I feel like internally is how I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, this last round of, of IVF, because I'm a little, I'm a little bit older, like the progesterone and the estrogen, it's like carrying the extra five pounds of baby weight that I just, I can't, mm-hmm. I, I can't seem to, to shed it no matter what I do and how, how much I run and how much I work out mm-hmm. and like your, the shape of your body changes. And all of that seems like, oh, you're being so vain. Mm. And, and maybe it, it is a little bit, but it's, it's just one extra thing that like infertility does to you yeah. mm-hmm. and how it makes you feel about yourself mm-hmm. is when you already feel internally, like you are failing mm-hmm. to then externally see something about yourself that doesn't make you feel comfortable it just complicates all of the emotions that you're feeling in that moment. Yeah. All of these things that happen because of this thing, I couldn't just do like everybody else does. Yes. And it feels, and it does feel in the moment, like when you're trying to get pregnant, it feels like everyone around you is having babies and having them easily. Like my best friend is someone that I've known since I was eight. We met when I moved to my little hometown, we were in second grade and I have known her like she knows where all the bodies are buried. She knows <laughs> everything kind of thing. Um, and her and her husband said, God, Ryan and Nicole have been trying for a really long time. You know, maybe we should try 
just in case we have issues. And I am not kidding. She got pregnant the very first try. Uh. And she, at the time they were living in San Diego and I was living in, in Charlotte and to her credit, she got on a plane. She flew across the country and she told me face to face because she knew that when she told me she was going to take my heart and like rip it out. And it was whatever raw feelings I was going to have. It was like putting the lemon juice on them because she had done to me what so many other, she'd heard me be like, that person's pregnant too. Like, and you you don't even mean to be mean about it because like you're thrilled that that person's pregnant. You really are. But it's just like salt in a wound. And she was, she was doing it to me. And she knew that it was going to be like this moment. And I remember she told, she told me when we were sitting on my back deck and I like jumped up and I hugged her and I was so happy. And then she explained why she was there. And she was like, I want you to be honest with me about how you're feeling. And I am like, she apologized. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're not apologizing for this. Like I was so happy for her that night we went to bed and turn the lights off. And I started sobbing uncontrollably. My husband pulled me in and he was like, I have been waiting for this all day. Yeah. And, you know, and we joke about it now. Like we joke about Lindsay, like she looks at her husband and she's had three kids and she like looks at her husband and gets pregnant and it makes it look so easy. Like, it's just, it's like no big deal. Um, and I don't begrudge her any of that at all. I wish it had been that easy for me, but then on the flip side, and like, you know what? I hate having these conversations and making people think that like, they should feel guilty about having it be easy. And that's like, like not at all. What you want. No, I get it. I just want to normalize it. Like, I just want it to be like, to be able to look at somebody and be like, I'm so happy that you're pregnant, but that's not the case. That's not the, the, the case for me. And it's been really hard. And I had a miscarriage last week, or I had a miscarriage three years ago. I want to make it normal so that we don't have to hide it and feel alone because your joy does not diminish my sadness and my sadness does not have to diminish your joy. Yes. And I can feel super happy for you and super sad for me, like hard, like conflicting emotions happen at the same time. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. But then also like, did your friend tell you this? When somebody says to you, you know, I'm having, yes, like I'm having, I'm having a hard time getting pregnant. And then that person goes, oh, you should just relax or go on vacation. Yeah. Yeah, Just keep trying. I had this, she mentioned this. I had this friend who, you know, or, you know, everyone always telling me, well, I have friends they tried for years and then finally they got pregnant. Just keep trying. And she's like, doesn't always work. Right. Good. Thanks. I'm glad that that worked for your friend, but that's not my, that's not my situation. Those conversations Uh drove me bananas. I just wanted to take the person and like shake them and be like, yes, that's great. I understand that that works for you, but that's not, that's not my story. Mm -hmm. I I needed help, you know? Yep. Yep. Sometimes people still message me to suggest maybe Chris has Lyme disease. (laughs) They serious, seriously. Yeah. Cause they can, some of the symptoms can like, they can mimic each other and some people have been misdiagnosed. Um, but like, I'm going to randomly send you that message later. You think maybe you just haven't relaxed and that's why you can't have kids. I, that's <laughs> probably it. 
<laughs> probably it. You just need to take a bubble bath. <laughs> go relax. Go have a drink and then have sex. Got it. Okay. Thanks. Okay. I hadn't thought of that before. Drunk oh. sex. That's the answer. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Somebody actually said that to me. Somebody actually said that to me. People are so clueless. (laughs) Make all the difference in the world. Got it. Oh man, man. The other thing that she mentioned to me, and I know you've written about this as well, is living your life in that four to six week window and how you just live in those cycles and how exhausting it is. And, and I hope she doesn't mind if I read what she wrote to me because I liked how she wrote it. She wrote, in that time, you're obsessing over every little feeling in your body, every ping, every time you were thirsty, avoiding Advil when you have a headache, not having a glass of wine just in case. There are years wasted thinking and hoping. Yes. I I remember specifically saying, so when we went in, when I went in to have the the tubal and the ablation, um, like I could have had the not the ablation, but I could have had the, the tubal. And then like, I, I could have still had a baby because mm-hmm. I could have still produced the eggs mm-hmm. um, and had like a surrogate do it. The ablation takes that out of the, the situation, but like removing the uterus and removing my ovaries, like that eliminates, yeah. eliminates the thing. And I had said to my doctor, like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I had said to her, I'm done living in that window because it was like for years, it's every month, even if like, and I hadn't been on birth control in a decade or more. Cause I had come off of it before Ryan, Ryan and I were together for four years before we got married. And there was like a, a time period before we got married where we're like, well, I mean, we're getting married. Like if it gets, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Let's just, you know, we wanted to do it. And we started trying in earnest like six months after. Um, and it's like every month for the better part of a decade was every, and it's not even a month, like saying it happens every month is like hmm. giving an extra 10 days of less worry, but it's like every 21 to 24 days, It'd be like, am I pregnant? Did it work this time? Did it work that time? And it's like every three and a half weeks of like thinking about it, worrying about it. Did we time it? Well, this month didn't time out right because Ryan was traveling or I was home or, or, or whatever. And it, it's, it's emotionally exhausting because you're constantly counting the days. You're constantly thinking about it. And then when you do get pregnant, you're like everything you feel in those weeks mm-hmm. where you're waiting to see if it takes or not, mm-hmm. every single thing that you feel is it's exa- it's exhausting. I remember thinking like I got to six weeks pregnant with Finley and thinking like I had reached a major milestone mm-hmm. yeah. because I gotten to the point where a normal person would know mm-hmm. that they were pregnant. And I remember feeling with Finley too, because I had t- terrible morning sickness with her. Mm. And I remember thinking, good, that's a good sign. Like when you have morning sickness, generally like that's a sign of like a healthy pregnancy. Like I was reading everything. I didn't even know if that's true or not, but I had morning sickness with her and I hadn't had it previously. Mm. And so you, you're constantly thinking of what's different about this time. That's not that time. And then as time goes on, you have like this mental checklist of, okay, did I, did I do that last time? Well, 
I, I went for a bike ride last time and then I lost the baby. So I'm not going to go on a right. I'm not going to go on a bike ride anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go swimming. And then before you know it, the list of the things that you don't want to do that you've talked yourself into mm-hmm. blaming yourself for mm-hmm. is so long that you sort of, in some ways you stop living your life yeah. because you're just constantly afraid of doing anything to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is that all of that's not, none of that is true. Like mm-hmm. Nothing I did going on that bike ride did not cause me to lose the baby. Mm-hmm. Like flying on an airplane did not cause me to lose a baby, but in my head, because I was blaming myself for everything, all of those things became my fault. Yeah. Now that you, I guess, have the benefit of hindsight, is there a way to help women not get to that headspace? Like, is that is that the having somebody to talk about it? Talk about it. it. Yeah. Yes. Talk about it. And like, even if this is what I think, like, I remember with Lindsay, Lindsay being pregnant with their daughter. And I had gotten to the point where um, we were going to, this was with Finley's transfer. We we're going to put Finley's egg in. She was a, a frozen egg transfer, a FET. So there was like this window in there where they had taken the egg out, they fertilize it, then they freeze it. Um, and then they, uh, let my body calm down because my body had freaked out from some of the meds and they're like, let's let your body calm down. Let's do a frozen egg transfer. Um, and then hopefully like your body is in like a better space to like accept the egg Mm -hmm. this time. Um, and the one person in the world I didn't want to talk to was the person I should have been talking to because she's the one who knew everything about me but because she was pregnant and she had so easily had the one thing that I had spent years trying to get, I couldn't talk to her in hindsight. Yeah. I should have just been really honest with her about how I was feeling yeah. about all of the things. Mm-hmm. And she would have been able to be, and she would have, and we've talked about this now. She was okay with the dueling emotions. Like she knew yeah. that even if I was hurt, by the timing of it, that I was also completely happy for her and did not begrudge her that ability to start her family. And I didn't, it was just the the dueling emotions. So I would say like to anyone who's going through it now Mm -hmm. to, to any extent, whether you're trying and you just haven't had it happen yet to whether you've lost a baby, to whether you're going through the many stages of infertility and the, the, the IUIs or the IVF or whatever it is that you're doing, or if you feel something in your body that you're like, this doesn't feel right. And you've got a doctor that you're, you're trying to push, like talk to somebody because chances are, if you're honest, like this is something that happens to some extent Every woman on the planet experiences this. Mm-hmm. We all get periods. Yep. It's normal. Yep. It doesn't have to be hidden. It's not a dirty secret. Like yeah. I'm it sorry. starts there, right? With just like, let's stop being freaked out about the word tampon. <laughs> yeah. Tampon, maxi pads, whatever. Like, let's normalize those conversations. Yes. And I think that's the thing. Like, if we normalize the we normalize the idea of I have to have a period. So that you can be born, right? Like the the, the the that that's just biologically how it works. Like we have to normalize the the concept of yeah. women's health. We have to, yeah. to normalize being able to talk about what happens to our bodies, mm-hmm. um, and that starts with talking to our kids about it. I talk to my kids about it. I want my kids to know. 
I want my kids to feel open enough uh, and comfortable enough so that when this does start to happen to them, because they're both girls, when this does start to happen to them, I want them to know that daddy is aware and mommy is aware. And I want you to be able to talk about it. I want you to know that this is a completely normal thing. And I think, I mean, it's a hot button issue at the moment. And I think about all of the things that I wouldn't have had access to if the rules, if the laws were different. Yeah. And I mentioned that to you over DM and just what, whether you felt comfortable sort of talking about, like right now, obviously in the US, the Supreme Court seems poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, which gives um, American women access, legal access to abortions. And I think that one part of that, that people don't understand or don't think about is how that does impact infertility treatments. IVF. They're like, they're they're, they're linked. Yeah. And your experience with your like abdominal, like your pregnancy that wasn't viable. But it also like, so I I had a a girlfriend who was brave enough within the last couple of weeks come out and say, I've had a couple of kids. I've also had a couple of abortions. Were they medically necessary? Yes. But why do I even have to justify that to you? Yeah. And I thought it was really brave of her to to say that. Um, But I think about sometimes like if it had been overturned, if I was living in a state that had made the decision to not allow it the medication that I would have needed within the last year and a half to solve or resolve the, the abdominal ectopic may not have been available to me. Mm-hmm. And then my life would have been in danger for something that wasn't medically viable. Mm-hmm. And while it wasn't an issue for me, because like there was, a, there was one point um, in one of the IVF cycles, they took out 14 eggs and they attempted to fertilize all of them. And I think seven of them fertilized, but after a couple of days, I was left with only two, but I had taken out 14 and we attempted to fertilize all 14 of them. What does it say about the ones that didn't make it? Mm-hmm. What does it say about the fact that I attempted to fertilize and then potentially freeze 14. What if I had successfully fertilized all of them? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to have 14 kids. It's not a conversation that I ever had to have, but there might be somebody out there who's having to have that conversation, Yeah, but they should be able to, uh, it's such a, it's such a hard conversation to have because it's like, you want people to be able to have their children without compromising their bodies and living beyond their means. And it shouldn't be a decision. I should be able to make those decisions for myself. I know what's right for me. I know what's right for my family. I know what I'm capable of doing and what I'm not capable of doing. And I, I don't want somebody else making that decision for me. Yeah. I think that we can talk about how complicated the notion of overturning Roe v. Wade gets the uncomplicated part of it is, you know, it's right for you. Right. And that's not a, that's not a political statement. That's across the board. I want every man, woman, and child to be able to say, this is what I need. You can't tell me what I need. I can't tell you what you know, or what's right for you. What's the right choice for your family. Yeah. 
Um, I know that you have to go very soon to a follow-up appointment for your <laughs> very fresh hysterectomy. <laughs> so I know you have this beautiful family now. You have, like you said, a wonderful supportive husband. You have two beautiful, healthy little girls, and you also carry a lot of scars, both literally and figuratively. And I wonder at this point, as I said, it's it's still very fresh for you. Like what what does it look like right now for you to carry those scars? I think I cry easier now than I ever did before. Um, I have, um, I've had some panic attacks. I've had to tell myself that it is okay to not be okay. I've had to tell myself that it's okay to have those moments where I doubt everything, Mm -hmm. but also look across the room and be incredibly grateful for what I do have. Mm -hmm. Um, the hysterectomy has brought up a lot of extra stuff. There's a finality, um, that comes with it. There's an end, there's a period. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I had the complications afterwards, um, sort of your life flashes before your eyes. Like basically I'd gone to the doctor and I was, there was, um, uh, an issue at an appointment. And I went from the doctor was like, man, you look great. Like go for a run. You can start like mm-hmm. getting back to your life again. And I went home and I started to have some cramping. Like my doctor's appointment was at 11 I was having some cramping at one by four, I was bleeding. And by six 30, I was hemorrhaging Oof. and I went for emergency surgery around two o'clock in the morning. They called for it around one 30. And I was like being wheeled back like two, two 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like it all kind of happened quickly. And I had sent my husband home to take care of the kids. Like I had a friend who was here. Cause obviously all this happens when our nanny isn't around and my parents are out of the country. Yeah. Um, and so I sent my husband, I was like, go home, get some rest. I had, we thought my surgery was going to be the next day that I wasn't going to be in need of an emergency surgery. And, um, he fell asleep and I couldn't get a hold of him mm. and I had to write and I knew it was bad. And I had to write the text message, tell them, tell them I love them Mm -hmm. and I love you. And I will let you know, but like, I needed to get the words out. Yeah. And so, um, afterwards I had some panic attacks and like, am I doing enough? Do I carry, do I carry too much guilt? Do I carry too much or whatever? So that's what it looks like right now. That's what this looks like. It looks like some of the grief resurfaced. It looks like uh, panic attacks. And I don't know why it looks like not being able to sleep some nights and then having the best sleep of my life the next. And it looks like trying to have an honest conversation with you about how I feel. And it might change one minute to the next. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Okay. One more question. Okay. If you could go back. Mm -hmm. And talk to that Nicole who lied to her boss because she was having a miscarriage and couldn't tell him. If you could go back to that Nicole who went to the bathroom in a porta potty at a NASCAR race and realized she was bleeding and losing a baby, what would you tell her? 
I would tell her to not be as afraid. I would tell her obviously that everything is going to turn out okay and that yeah. there are going to be some bumps in the road, but you are a hell of a lot stronger than you think. Yeah. Um, and I would tell her to talk and yeah. don't keep calling. Yeah. Talk. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for talking to me. And really thank you. Like, we don't know each other, but yet I Yes, feel- we do. <laughs> we don't. We've never met. You know, no, I but know. I feel that way about so many people. From that, from that second I we did that interview together. And like just like I said, the way that I saw you looking at Chris, I just I connected with you. So thank yeah. you for letting me in too. Oh. Well, I appreciate everybody who is willing to tell our story. And I especially appreciate people who know how to talk to people who are going through hard things. It's not everybody can do it and you can, and it's a gift and, and hopefully you can keep using it because you've got a great platform too. Thanks for giving me the courage to mm. hug. hug. Good luck at your appointment. Thank you. Okay. You okay. okay. Bye. Bye Nicole. Two of my biggest takeaways from this conversation with Nicole are that we have to keep talking about these things. We have to talk about women's bodies and doctors have got to start believing women when they are saying they are not well. Nicole spent 10 years with a serious undiagnosed condition because nobody was listening to what she was saying. If you listen to me a couple episodes back talk about my stroke, you know I was treated sort of like a dramatic dehydrated housewife with a bad headache when I had actually had a stroke. Study after study confirms that significant biases exist in medical care when it comes to gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, race, and socioeconomic status. In the months after Nicole sent me that message way back in February 2021 sharing her story with me, she started telling it to a much larger audience with articles in People and Glamour magazines. I could have talked to Nicole for a lot longer, and so I thought I would share more of her voice by reading part of the article she wrote in Glamour magazine about her infertility. Nicole wrote, Making a decision to start a family is already such a personal step, but when you can't do what you figure your body was created to do and are frequently bombarded with questions of whether you're going to start a family, you fold inside yourself and hide from the world. Even after birthing Finley, we continued to struggle. The joy we experienced from her birth, although long-awaited and deeply desired, wasn't a replacement for all the losses we'd had and the ones we had yet to endure. Being an ESPN Sports Center anchor and having my face seen by millions means I've had to fortify my mask to stay hidden. Once I was late for work after having a miscarriage that morning, I'd made up an irresponsible excuse and was subsequently reprimanded, but they had no idea, and the excuse was easier than the truth. I just couldn't bring myself to say it. There have been countless times I've had to wipe my tears, fix my makeup, and push aside the pain of actually feeling my body reject my baby. I focused on doing my job while keeping those close to me at a distance with the thought that I was protecting them from my pain. Although they supported me, I knew they couldn't relate. After my most recent miscarriage, which was my final one because it was my last egg, I've decided to publicly share my struggles. After this last attempt and failure, I was devastated and have never felt more alone. So I'm not just speaking up for solidarity, but for the changes that need to happen within this unique community. If you haven't lived it, you don't know what it's like. The average cost of fertility treatments, called IVF cycles, in the U.S. are between $10,000 and $15,000, with an additional $1,500 to $3,000 for medications per cycle. 
this alone keeps a large percent of the infertile population from moving forward with certain procedures because it would be a financial burden. And there's still no guarantee it will work by the end of the cycle. Some who have sacrificed their life savings or accrued a second mortgage may not be able to afford trying again. These reproductive rights issues shouldn't exist. In addition to the costs, fertility clinics are not set up as nurturing environments. They are supposed to be a place where families can find compassion and most of all hope, but in reality, they are basically a cattle call. Number egg sperm, zero emotional care. And with COVID and having to go to the doctor appointments alone, there's an extra layer of isolation added to the experience. During these challenging years, I've learned that there is no right or wrong answer for how to process this journey and no one can put a timeline on personal grief. I don't have to be the strongest in the room because it's okay to cry and it's okay to not be okay. I am truly in awe every time I look at our two girls. My family is my home and simply my everything. Looking at me, no one would know how much loss my husband and I have experienced to get here. But the moments of loss, guilt, and failure don't have to be a solo journey if we would all connect. We can remove some of these questions and learn from each other and possibly take away some of the stress while sharing the pain. One more reminder that if you value this podcast and these conversations and want to support my work, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow to become a member. For as little as $5 a month, you can help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and get access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Thanks, as always, for listening. The past is now.